0: okay so so here's a here's a common picture of justification among a, a epistemologists so typically when a person is looking something red, her sense impressions pump in justification for the belief that there's something red in front of her but uh, there can be contrary considerations that may pump some of the justification out and in addition to that the 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 justification provided by the senses can be fully or partially undercut say by evidence that the lighting is bad and this involves like, uh, creating a leak in the pipe from sense impressions to belief so that not all of the justification gets through Uh, and, and so on this view the job of the epistemologist is to come up with an epistemological dipstick that will measure the overall level of justification Um, well presumably the fluid to be measured is immaterial so it takes advanced training and recent epistemological techniques to come up with an accurate dipstick Um, well there's lots of variations in the details of the picture for instance over what the sources are in fact uh, coherentists uh, claim that the idea of sources has to be broadened uh, build a complex Enough array of pipes, and the fluid will automatically appear to fill them. Um, and there are also debates about the fluid di- dynamics. I mean, um, the question of exactly what it, what are the circumstances under which a valid argument transmits justification from premises to conclusions has been much discussed in recent years. So what I'm going to try to do is to present an alternative picture. Um, now, I've I've listed three motivations, and, and in the body of today's talk, I'm going to focus on the first one of avoiding dubious metaphysics. I mean, that's the uh, epistemic fluid. Um, the the third one um, is going to be. Was more or less the topic of next time. Um, uh, Let me say a a couple of remarks about the second one. Um, Sorry, I say it's not the main focus for today, but I I, I think I'd like to say something about it. Um, So 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 the point of second one is that that I think that um, um, I think that the, the. the dubious metaphysics of the fluid picture perverts a, a, a epistemological discussion on ground-level epistemological claims. So let me just mention two examples. Uh, first, the justification of induction. Um, um, so I think that both both the search for a justification of induction as standardly understood and also the usual attempts to dissolve the problem were all generated by this uh, 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 um, bad picture, the fluid picture. And, uh, and that in both cases uh, they focused attention away from the real problems of evaluating competing epistemological methods. Uh, so the issue of justifying induction has been viewed as basically the problem of avoiding inductive skepticism where the inductive skeptic is viewed not as somebody who, advise, who, who advises us not to induce because who, who could take such advice seriously but, um, but as uh, uh, someone who says that if we do induce we won't be justified uh, uh, where this is viewed as having some kind of uh, metaphysical blessing um, uh, so get get rid of this picture of justification and you get rid of the usual view of the justification of induction though there is still a question of evaluating uh, competing inductive methods um, and I think the situation with the justification of induction has, has uh, recently been repeating itself with Regard to the justification of deduction, um, again there are real problems about uh, deductive logic of the kind that I was talking about in the last couple of weeks, where there are 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 arguments for an alternative logic for for certain specific reasons, and and and, and there are debates to be had both for and against. Um, 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 the alternatives, um, um, but but I think that the recent discussion of this has uh, has um, moved away from this. It, it, it's uh, uh, it, it, it's um, there's a lot of people who uh, discuss the justification of uh, logic in a way that is concerned with combating deductive skepticism uh, in isolation from uh, serious debates about alternative logics. So a main motive of this paper is to provide an alternative picture of epistemology that will get it back to its proper job. Okay, but as I say in the rest of today's paper, I'm not really going to be focusing on the ground level of histomology. I'm going to be just uh, trying to give the idea. So the the um, the idea, something I call expressivist relativism. Uh, expressivism and relativism are often viewed as as competing views, but I think uh, I think they're um, a proper expressivism involves relativism and a proper relativism involves expressivism. Um, so the basic idea here is that is that calling a belief justified or reasonable is evaluating it, uh, evaluating it from an epistemological perspective, um, and evaluations, including epistemic ones, aren't straightforwardly factual. So the general idea here is familiar In the case of morality, though without much agreement as to how it should be developed. And I think that most of the reasons for the position in the moral case extend to the epistemological case as well. So I won't go through the reasons, but I've listed a few of the standard reasons in the moral case, and I think they all extend to the epistemological. Mr. Milano Case. So I'll give you just a second to read them since I don't feel like going through them and then I will take it away. Sorry to you. Um, okay, so there are, are some much discussed problems for the idea that evaluations have a kind of not straightforwardly factual status. Uh, here I think are the main ones. Uh, first of all, what does it mean to say that they aren't straightforwardly factual? Second, how can, um, even if you make sense of this for atomic claims and negations of atomic claims, how do you extend it to embedded constructions or uh, 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 such as if P is reasonable, then Q is reasonable, and so forth. And the third one, um, well, it concerns making sense of rational debate. So I've actually divided it up into two parts. First of all, how, how can the view accommodate the obvious fact that people can debate claims about what's reasonable? And secondly, how can it allow straightforwardly factual claims to have a role in such debates? And I think the answers to these problems are going to involve a kind of relativism. In some sense, evaluative claims Involve a free parameter for a norm of a assessment. However, there are two big differences between how the free parameter works in this case and in the case of sentences like it's raining. Um, the most important of these is a distinction between uh, what I'll, I'll call contextual relativism versus assessor relativism now I take the term assessor relativism from John McFarlane um, and I think what I have to say about it is in the spirit of what he has to say but actually I've, for a number of reasons I actually have a hard time making literal sense of what he says in detail so so it's not really exactly in McFarlane's sense but, but as I say I think it is very much in the spirit of it and um, I'll be uh, I'll be mentioning this distinction several times, uh, though I think I, I, it won't become fully clear until towards the end of the talk what I mean by this. Um, but but roughly, and putting it in semantic terms that, I'll, that ultimately I want to back off from. Uh, Roughly, the the idea is that um, um, in the case of "it's raining," the 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 speaker, in some sense, intends the 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 parameter for place and time to be to be filled in by a, a certain definite value in the. Uh, in the evaluative case, one doesn't intend the parameter to be filled at all, either by an intended norm or anything else, because that would strip away the evaluative force of the claim. So it's it's to be carried on like a free parameter. Uh, well, as I say, I'll I'll, I'll be uh, trying to make a little more sense of this as we go on. Um, also. I should say, there isn't a a, a related difference is that there typically isn't a unique intended norm, so there isn't anything even that one could uh, fill in, even if one wanted to, which one shouldn't want to. So that's the way in which the view is relativist. Um, It's also expressivist in that evaluative sentences Express a mental state that is a, a resultant of the speaker's norms and the speaker's factual beliefs. Uh, so it, it's also, I mean, the, the paradigm these days of an expressiveist view is uh, Alan Gibbard's view, and I think this view I'm going to be advocating I think is really a, a, a notational variant of his. So what? What he says is that evaluative claims express propositions of an extended kind, not just sets of worlds, but sets of norm-world pairs. So if a sentence A expresses an extended proposition consisting of a set of norm-world pairs and uh, W, then uh, we could rephrase that by saying that A is something that can be true at a world yeah. W relative to a uh, norm N. Now, in a typical assertion, we're making a claim about the actual world. Um, We're filling in the world slot with uh, I don't know how you read that. (coughs) The actual world. Um, Gibbard obviously didn't intend there to be a metaphysically privileged norm playing a role (coughs) analogous to that of the actual world, so he must have intended to leave the norm parameter free. Um, Now, of course, the same normative proposition can be true in the actual world relative to some norms but not others, so speakers who agree on all the relevant facts can still evaluate the proposition in different ways by employing different norms in making their evaluations. And none of the completing evaluations would be metaphysically privileged over the others. So, in summary, the view has both elements associated with relativism, though not the crude contextual sort of relativism, and also elements associated with expressivism, though not the pre, not the the crude pre-gibbered non cognivist variety of that in which no proposition is expressed or in which one's factual beliefs don't enter into normative evaluation. So that's why I'm calling the view expressivist relativism. Uh, sometimes I'll probably just call it evaluativism, since that's true but now when I've put forward this view before a lot of people get very hung up on the question of whether what I'm doing is trying to describe the ordinary meaning of sentences about justification or on the other hand am I recommending a revision in ordinary practice well, the answer to this is that I, I, don't, I don't take any stand on what the ordinary speaker means. Indeed, I, I, I doubt that that's a clear question. Because of this, I can't choose either disjunct. Um, what I do claim to, be about, claim to be revisionary about is the philosophical views of normative realists. so what i hold is that to the extent that ordinary people are committed to metaphysical justification they're in error and to the extent that the meanings of their words are so committed then these meanings of these meanings are founded on error and have to be replaced still i want a notion of justification that while it has no such metaphysical commitments, could still play much of the role that the ordinary notion plays in ordinary practice. It probably couldn't play all of it, and it definitely couldn't play all, all play the, all the and uh, definitely not all the practice of uh, normative realists. Um, So basically, uh, another way to put it is that that I'm advocating the the metaphysics of the error theorist, but without the commitment one way or the other to the error error theorist's claim that the ordinary speaker is actually an error. That is, I'm not. um, (coughs) The metaphysics of the error theorist is right, and you can take your stand on whether the the ordinary speaker um, already believes uh this metaphysics. Um, so so if you are an error theorist, you can take the proposal to be a proposal for how we should talk now that we have recognized the error. So it's got it's got some of the flavor of what Simon Blackburn has called quasi-realism. Um but, 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 but unlike quasi-realism, the view doesn't attempt to mimic the normative realist, even in ground-level normative, as opposed to meta-normative discourse. So, so Blackburn and Gibbard, in fact, seem to think that there's a that there's a clear line between. Uh, 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 ground-level discourse and, and meta-normative discourse. And I guess I'm skeptical of their, being <coughs> up their line here at all. Um, um, in addition... To, well... Uh, anyway, uh, um, the up, 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 upshot of, of this is that, is that we can mimic a great deal of ordinary practice without mimicking normative realism. Uh, even e- even as regards ground-level discourse. Okay, now I've remarked that there are two big differences between the kind of relativity involved in claims about justification and the kind involved in ordinary contextual sentences like it's raining. Um, I've mentioned one of them. Though I haven't really explained it very much yet, and 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 that's the one that says that uh, normative realism involves a assessor relativity rather than contextual relativity. The second one is that the relativity in epistemological judgments is controversial. It's contended at least by epistemological realists, and again, depending on how you go on the error theory issue, it it. It may go against the opinions of the person on the street, and I, I think these differences are independent of each other. And it's important to realize that many, many cases of uh, there are, are many cases of of controversial relativity of a of a of a contextual sort. And it's it's useful to 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 uh, think about them because they have one of the uh, two key elements uh, of of claims. So um, one one that has come in for some discussion, and I'll mostly focus on is is the relativity of uh, temporal priority to a state of, of motion. That's what. Uh, special relativity told us about. Actually, a, a, a somewhat neater example um, is uh, is is the relativity of uh, parallelism of line segments to a path of transport. Um, I mean, th- this is more dramatic because I mean, so uh, these fingers don't seem uh, parallel, right? But if you know about uh, non non-euclidean geometry and the fact that uh, physical space is non-euclidean, there actually uh, is, is a path of transport relative to which you, if you parallel transport one finger, it will come back to this one. Actually, I mean, there are, are lots of, sets of paths of. Transport. The obvious way to do it is to go to far away where the world is highly non Euclidean and then bring it back. Actually, you can even get one that doesn't go very far away just by uh, looping around uh, with the very small degree of non Euclideanness around here. Um, so, this example is more dramatic, which is a fact that I will make use of later Um, but in any case these are both examples of relativity and basic notions that went against the views of the person on the street uh, not just against those of opposing theorists so they they may well involve a change of meaning of the term "simultaneous" or "parallel to," but if they did, then the old meaning needed changing. Um, um, so, so don't worry about whether it's a change of, of meaning or not. Um, so, similarly, if we if we suppose that ordinary epistemological practice is committed to a non-relative notion of metaphysical. Justification. then if it turns out that the old meaning is incoherent or that nothing falls under it, then we need to replace it by a notion that serves much the same purposes but without the commitment. So I'm not actually going to be arguing today that the commitment to metaphysical justification is incorrect. I mean, I did mention the three... Standard worries that people have about normative realism, and I find these worries somewhat persuasive. But my goal isn't to argue the case, but just to put forward a view of justification compatible with the normative realism being incorrect. Because I think the case for it actually being incorrect is better made once it's shown that there is a good alternative. So, I mean, that would show that the cost of giving up realism is far less. Than epistemological realists would have you believe. Now, the term relativism has had the misfortune of being defined by its opponents. Uh, I mean, in the first place, they 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 typically define it to mean contextual relativism. Uh, yeah, I think that would destroy the whole point of the doctrine, but but I'll get back to that. Um, But secondly, they've also often defined relativism as committed to the idea that all norms are equally good. Uh, Now, no relativism of the sort I want to defend has any such commitment. So on this second point, I mean, important norms, whether epistemological or moral, differ in straightforwardly factual ways that matter to us. Um, And if norm 1 has straightforwardly factual features that we like less than the corresponding straightforwardly factual features of N2, we regard N1 as in this respect worse than N2. I mean, it might also be better in other respects an overall evaluation takes into account the different respects this leads to a, a partial order, there will be incomparabilities as well as ties um, and there, there will also be some indeterminacy as to the details of the partial order um, but in any case there will be this partial order so why would anyone claim that, that any two norms are equally good now, I've, uh, some people who are intent on attributing this to the, uh, the relevance will uh, uh, commonly object, in the way that I've put it here, uh, these comparative judgments of which norms are better than which are themselves normative, so you haven't really allowed for one entire normative system being better than another one. Well, but I think the reply to this is, I guess, yes, yes, to the first claim, uh, the comparative judgments are normative, but how it's supposed to follow that uh, no one normative system is better than the other, is kind of a mystery to me. That means it, it doesn't follow. <laughs> um, now, on this issue of whether there's a uniquely best norm, I mean, it seems to me that the natural answer is no. Um, uh, it, or, or certainly not obviously. I mean, first of all, it may well be that, that for each norm there's a, a better one. Um, it may also be that there are ties and incomparabilities all the way up. That is, it isn't just norms that aren't sufficiently good that can be equally good or incomparable. It's all the way up that this holds. Um, now, relativism actually can remain neutral on this issue. Um, or, or, sorry, claim. I claim... I mean, I... S- I I guess somebody could argue that if there were a uniquely best norm, then it would be hard to make the distinction between a a, a uniquely best norm and an objectively correct norm. I I, I think that's kind of doubtful. I mean, an advocate of special relativity might argue that a frame of reference in which the center of mass of, of the universe is at rest is in some sense uh, the best one Uh, I mean I don't know it's most aesthetically pleasing or convenient for certain kinds of calculations which which happen often or something like that Um, but at the same time they could insist that it's being objectively best in that sense um, doesn't make it objectively correct in the way that uh, Newtonian or or Lorentzian mechanics would demand so um, um, so I don't really think the, the, the relativist is committed to a no answer though I do think the no answer is actually the most plausible answer but it, look, it looks like a realist is committed to a, a yes answer I mean how could an objectively correct norm fail to be uniquely the best one um Okay, now, one thing you might... <coughs> well, well, it, there's a special worry about epistemic norms, um, which is there's a kind of quasi-circularity here that plays a, an important role in, in meta epistemology. I mean... Um, Moral norms come into play when one evaluates what one ought to do relative to the assumption that such and such are the non-moral facts. And similarly, epistemological norms come into play when one evaluates what one ought to believe relative to the assumption that um, uh, such and such are the non epistemic epistemological facts but in addition epistemological norms come in in ascertaining what these non-epistemological facts are and the need to use these norms in the second stage as well as the first is what I have in mind by the quasi-circularity well what's the significance of the Uh, quasi-circularity it doesn't prevent us from reaching Views about what the non-epistemological facts are. By and large, we do do so by uh, following the uh, the epistemic norms that we actually follow. Um, but 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 there is there are concerns about the epistemological significance of this, and, and let me, me mention two concerns. Um. Both of them named uh, after a couple of famous papers of David Lewis. Uh, the one which he discusses is the problem of modesty. It, um, it it may well seem that any method will positively evaluate itself as better than its competitors, in which case uh, positive self-evaluation doesn't really cut any ice. Uh, and then there's the problem of modesty, which actually he doesn't discuss, but is natural to raise in in uh, connection with this paper, uh, which is that if... Uh, contrary to the problem of immodesty some methods do negatively evaluate themselves and say that other methods do better then we seem to have a situation where a method tells us not to follow itself and this seems <coughs> somehow incoherent. I mean, that's the thing I, I talked about a little bit uh, uh, in the first lecture and we'll talk about it more next time. Um, in fact Next time, I'm going to argue that both of these problems are not, in the end, as serious as they may have initially seem. But even if that's wrong, it's it's hard to see how the quasi-circularity could support the charge that, according to relativism, all epistemic norms are equally good. So. So, I will take it that relativism doesn't have this uh, feature. OK, I better start speeding up a little bit. Actually, this slide um, I, uh, uh, really, the main content of this is something I talked about in an earlier lecture. So, there are different ways of understanding norms. I'm going to take it that norms of obligation. So, and so forth are are policies of a certain sort and that norms of goodness are preferences of a certain sort, there is an alternative way of trying to understand norms, namely as normative propositions Um, but I'm going to view the normative propositions as generated from the policies and preferences Uh, I mean uh, so maybe there are more objective normative propositions um, but I'm trying to avoid them I'm trying to uh, get normative discourse to run only from normative propositions that are generated from uh, policies and preferences and things like that okay another thing I'll basically skip over oh oh a lot of people um, raise an objection that if I try to base norms on uh, uh, judgments on policies and, and preferences, I'm going to have to have to in order to get the distinction between moral norms and epistemic norms I'm going to have to make a, a distinction between moral policies and uh, epistemic policies and and so forth and that seems hard but actually I don't see how there can be any more of a problem here than there is for the normative realist I mean as far as I can see whatever line the normative realist takes about what distinguishes moral oughts from epistemic oughts uh, the same thing ought to be usable by me uh, at the level of uh, policies well maybe that's not right but if not somebody can object um, okay well I think I'll basically skip this slide too because it, it's something will it's really more related to the next lecture than today's uh, oh, let me just say that that uh, um, I that it's dangerous to talk about a person's norms because there are different kinds of relations that a person can have to a norm and it's going to be very important to distinguish among them, especially when we come to the issue of normative change. All right. And this one I can be real quick about too. Um, because uh, it's obvious. I mean, so when you take norms in abstraction from relation to agents, um, so there's an obvious explication of the idea of an action or belief or whatever being reasonable relative to a policy. Uh, uh we can explain that in non normative terms it means basically that the that acting believing and so forth in the manner in question given the circumstances in which the agent finds herself is compatible with the policy all right so now Get back to normal speed for a while. Um, so, a norm relative notion of reasonableness induces a norm relative notion of truth for sentences about reasonableness. So, first consider ordinary indexical claims where the indexicality isn't explicit, like the, the birth happened just before the star exploded. Now, to those not knowing of relativity, this seems to have no indexicality. So when such people attribute truth to the claim, then they, they don't require any indexicality in the truth predicate. But for those who do know of special relativity, will still make utterances of these forms, but will, quote, intend them indexically, uh, with a hidden relativity to a state of motion uh, uh, in the predicate (coughs) for, and also, I'm going to say, in in the um, uh, predicate true. Now, talk of it, intending them indexically is slightly misleading because it's rare to explicitly think about the relativity in the uh, uh, various terms. I mean, when one just uh, judges that this finger is not parallel to that one, uh, most of us, even though we n- know the non euclidean geometry, much we don't secretly think well, it's uh, relative, uh, relative to such an, such, a, such a route of transport, but not to others. We just think, uh, oh, oh no, they're not parallel. Um, but still, one has a standing view that when one one makes such utterances or thinks such thoughts, a a relativized interpretation is appropriate. So, yeah, so I, I, I'm. I'm going to be saying that they implicitly uh, 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 relativize. And um, so this means that when you give an instance of the truth schema, like number two up there, you have to construe this as for all states of motion F, the birth happened just before the star exploded is true relative to F if and only if the birth happened just before the star exploded relative to F. Uh, So there's a hidden relativity to a state of motion in the predicate true on the left-hand side as well as in the before on the right-hand side. And that's to be expected because the nature of truth guarantees the equivalence between the left and right-hand side of the truth schema the right-hand side has a hidden indexical, so the former must as well. So to uh, summarize the, the kind of relativity that I claim there is in a of claims, first of all, it's a controversial relativity it's controverted, at least by many theorists of, evalu- of evaluated discourse. And secondly, unlike the time order case, it's or the parallelism case, it's not contextual relativity, but it's a assessor relativity, which I will be saying more about soon. Um, now, a consequence of the second difference is going to be that in... in In the norm case, typical ways of making the indexicality explicit destroy the evaluative nature of the utterance. Um, But despite this hugely important difference, the remarks on truth carry over from the contextual case. So, first of all, it's perfectly okay for an evaluative relativist to say, that belief is reasonable is true if and only if that belief is reasonable. But secondly this has to be understood as involving a kind of hidden relativity to a norm, both in the unquoted term reasonable on the right hand side and in the true (coughs) left hand side. Okay, well I'm going to skip the remarks on McFarlane here. Um of behind um, and again so my claim that there's a, a a hidden relativity in the term reasonable applies at least to attributions of truth to sentences involving that term as used by relativists now how should we apply true to utterances with, with that term made either by committed anti-relativists or to the person on the street well I don't want to I don't want to take a stand here because it involves issues that I think are exactly like the issues that arise for the application of true to simultaneity judgments by those who don't know or don't accept relativity theory um, there are, 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 are different views you could take on that, and I would say whatever answer you take on that, you, you can take the corresponding answer uh, uh, in the case of evaluative terms. I mean, actually, my own view is that there is actually no uh, determinate fact of the matter as to how to treat them. That's because I'm kind of a pointy. Um okay, let me get on to the distinction between pure and impure degrees of belief um, so so a pure a pure belief or a pure degree of belief is one that doesn't depend on our policies and an impure belief or degree of belief does so so pure, Pure degrees of belief are going to be treated in the usual way in terms of like a a measure on the space of possible worlds or something like that. And we can extend this to the impure. So um, uh, Gibbert defines a precise norm as something which in conjunction with any possible world determines a truth value for every evaluative sentences um, well precise policies clearly meet this condition for instance if, if a policy prohibits believing P in circumstances C but in no other circumstances then it determines the value true for you should refrain from believing P in those worlds in which C is true and, and it determines the value false in the other worlds so restating this the precise norm in effect assigns to each statement A the set of worlds uh, A sub N in which A is true relative to the norm N Um, well there are ways to weaken this uh, to imprecise norms but let me not talk about that so so the probability function P giving the agent's pure degrees of belief determines some function P star which assigns to each precise norm and a probability function uh, on all claims. Um, so the original probability function assigns to each non-evaluative claim the agent's pure degree of belief Unmixed by normative evaluation, and if 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 S is committed to the precise norm N, then that combined with P results in a probability function that extends P by assigning to each evaluative claim uh, uh, a number that represents the agent's impure degrees of so it's impure because it contains the evaluated element given by the norm N in, in addition to the pure belief component given by P. Um, well, I, I take it that's clear. Uh, I'll uh, skip the rest of the slide. But I, I, I think the idea is presumably clear. Um, so now the question arises, well, should impure belief count as belief. That is, uh, suppose an agent is committed to a norm n and has degrees of belief in non-evaluative claims given by the function p, should we think of the extended function p star sub n as literally giving the agent's degrees of belief in arbitrary claims, properly so-called, or should we think of it as giving Degrees of something that are formally like beliefs, but not the real thing. Well, so my answer is that there's no properly so-called about it. We can talk either way, uh, quite reasonably. I, um, um, uh, um, th- there is a kind of naturalness to talk of impure uh, uh, belief. Um, it's going to connect up more with the phenomenon of uh, normative agreement. But rather than talk about belief properly so-called, uh, I just want to talk about pure, uh, both about pure degrees of belief and about impure degrees of belief. Okay, so one of the questions that I raised about... Uh, 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 for this view was how do we make sense of the idea that, uh, uh, that, that statements of justification are not straightforwardly factual what I mean by this is that they have a hidden relativity <coughs> somewhat analogous to the hidden relativity in simultaneous or parallel though it, it's as I keep saying it's assessor relativity rather than contextual relativity. Now, even with controversial cases of contextual relativity, it's natural to say that statements that aren't explicitly relativized but should be aren't straightforwardly factual, but only factual relative to a state of motion in the case of of simultaneity, or a path of transport in the case of parallelism, and so forth. And I take this to be more natural still when it is a assessor relativity. To call a claim straightforwardly factual isn't intended as a positive characterization, but simply as a denial that it has any of the characteristics that would make it appropriate to call it less than straightforwardly factual. And in the present context, I think the only... Uh, relevant such characteristic is relativity and in particular assessor relativity. So in my remarks about um, justification claims being not straightforwardly factual, um, I mean that they are not factual in a non-assessor relative way. Um, so not not straightforwardly factual doesn't imply not truth apt so the word true has an important logical role which is as important for normative claims as it is elsewhere well I talked about this in a previous lecture I mean basically you, you need truth to facilitate quantification into sentential position, you need to do that in order to express agreement and disagreement. I mean, uh, to express disagreement when you're not sure... Uh, a disagreement over a large body of claims when you're not sure exactly um, where you're going to disagree about. Uh, what about the term fact? Um, can we use the term fact for these claims, too? Well you can if you like and uh, you don't have to if you don't like Uh, that's uh, uh, sorry I'm I'm running a little late here so so in the case of it is a straightforward fact I mean it would be I mean you, you could take the same pleonastic line with that as you took with the term true but there wouldn't be much point in that. In fact, all it could do would be to mislead. Um, uh, I mean, it would make the term straightforward redundant. Uh, so it'd be sort of like a, a, a super uh gone mad who who, uh, who 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 says of a borderline case of baldness that the sentence must either be determinately bald or not determinate bald on the ground that in each valuation uh, it's either determinately bald or, or not, so that when you super over all of the valuations, uh, you get that it's determinately bald. Uh, so, I mean, it is a straightforward fact that, like determinately on the super Picture is supposed to be a strengthening of true that gives one the means of commenting on the status of the claims in scope. Now, there is a worry here that I'm sliding over, which is, uh, I mean, what I've just, uh, just said assumes that the strengthening makes sense, um, and in both the case of straightforwardly and deterrently, we need an account of what it comes to. But in the case of straightforwardly, I've suggested one, um, which is the absence of uh, implicit relativity. Uh Uh, in particular the absence of sensitivity to policies, preferences, and so forth, that is to norms as I'm understanding them. The the difference between statements that are norm-sensitive and those that aren't ultimately comes to the difference of the conceptual and social roles of norms on the one hand and pure beliefs on the other. Um, Is there room for skepticism about whether such an account can be provided in the end Um, well this is the worry that Jamie Dreyer has called um, uh, the worry of creeping minimalism Um, so uh, um, uh, let me give a brief response to it um, uh, uh, first of all uh, uh, the fact was needs to hold that one norm is objectively privileged but a valid need not and probably shouldn't accept that any one norm is best so that's a real difference um, but secondly and I think more centrally considering, again, the relativity about temporal order, parallelism, and so forth. So here, too, an advocate of such relativity will often use ordinary unrelativized language in talk and in thought. Um, Not only do I use unrelativized claims about these things in my speaking and writing um, and thinking, I I, uh, uh, regard such claims as true. Those truth attributions have the same implicit relativity as the ground-level claims, but here, too, I I usually don't explicitly think the relativity. So so the question is, what distinguishes me from the person who doesn't accept relativity theory? Well, I think the answer is kind of obvious. It's that... It's that while in many contexts I may, on a superficial level, talk and think just like those ignorant of relativity, I don't do so when the chips are down. When it matters, I explicitly relativize. And I think that's basically so in the normativity case, too. Um, uh, In certain contexts of persistent disagreement about whether I ought to believe X, I will back off the norm-sensitive language and say instead something like, well, relative to such and such standards, I ought to believe X. Moreover, these are standards that, that I advocate uh, because they have, have su- such and such pro- properties, which I strongly favor. Now, I think you could, in principle, conduct all normative debate in this sort of terminology. Uh, uh, this would involve fully disentangling the impersonal, straightforwardly factual aspects, that is what I should do relative to such and such standards, what standards, uh, what, what straightforwardly factual properties those standards have, and so forth, uh, and the autobiographical factual properties of what my attitudes are, what standards I advocate, and what properties of standards I prefer. But it, it would be highly impractical to do so. In fact, we couldn't without a lot of circumlocution because we uh, usually don't don't uh, uh, don't have. Very clear awareness of exactly what our norms are. So, you'd have to. So, doing this would actually be quite complicated. But, um skip that. Um, all right, I'm going to skip about neurotmic debate as well. Um, so let me say something about assessor relativism. Actually, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I am running a little late here, so, so I'm going to skip a lot of this as well. Um, part of this is about how this connects up to John McFarlane's views. Um, so uh, let me just say, to start with it, that I want to... Uh, um, uh okay um, the way that i want to in in uh, in interpret assessor relativism at the semantic level is that the assertions contain a free variable for a a a a, a norm and so Roughly speaking, um, no. um, uh, um, let me not say more. A. Out, out, about that, because that's, that's the semantic representation. But I think at the most basic level, the distinction between cons- con- contextual and assessor relativism uh, is a pragmatic distinction, a matter of what we treat as a disagreement. So in, in, in the cases of contextual relativity, like it's raining, the special relativity cases people don't count as disagreeing unless they disagree in their straightforwardly factual beliefs but this is not so in general I mean two people can disagree about where to go to dinner even though there's no relevant factual disagreement between them And similarly, in the normative case, people who advocate doing different things or make opposed claims about what they ought to do count as disagreeing, even if the difference stems not from a difference in their straightforwardly factual beliefs, but from a difference in in the policies or preferences that generate normative claims. So typically, the disagreement about a specific matter, for instance, how quickly the government ought to withdraw troops from Iraq, will be due both to straightforwardly factual differences and to rather basic normative policies. Um, As a matter of psychological fact, our norms and beliefs are seamlessly integrated to what extent the disagreement is based on straightforward facts and to what extent on basic norms is extremely hard to determine in practice. And this seamless integration is part of what underlies the naturalness of talk of impure belief. We can say in general that disagreement consists of having opposed (laughs) impure beliefs without differentiating the contribution to impure belief made by Pure beliefs on the one hand and by norms on the other hand. Uh, Let me just, um, I I realize I'm going a little over time, but I'll I'll finish up within three minutes. So, um, the pragmatic difference between assessor relativity and ordinary. Textual relativity is of fundamental importance because of it. The distinction between implicit relativity and explicit relativity is vastly more important in, in the nor case, where it's a sensor relativity, than it is in the contextual relativity example. So let me just illustrate this with contextual relativity, two people disagree in their utterances of an implicitly relativized sentence like it's raining, if and only if they would disagree had they explicitly relativized to the locations they intended. So there it really doesn't make much difference whether you explicitly relativize or not. Um, That's not true in the assessor relativity cases because explicit relativization then removes the role of the assessor so consider Jones and Smith Jones utters the sentence J we ought to withdraw our troops within a month Smith utters the negation of that they're clearly disagreeing due to some combination of disagreement about straightforward facts and disagreement in fundamental policies so they have impu- they have opposed impure beliefs but now suppose they utter explicitly relativized variants. Well, one issue is exactly which explicitly relativized variants you pick. I mean, one way of doing it is relativizing to a specific policy uh, uh, that's uh, J star. Um, another way of doing it is relativizing to policies with a specific property, that's J double star. So, there are, are are different ways of explicitly relativizing, um, but so pick whichever one you like. Um, if 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 Jones explicitly relativizes in either of these ways, and Smith explicitly relativizes in the analogous way, um, then they may not be disagreeing. Um, um, for instance, if 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 they if they agree on the straightforward facts, then uh, 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 Jones and Smith will will agree with each other's explicitly relativized statements, um, even though uh, they uh, disagree with the not explicitly relativized ones. So, um, so the sensitivity to norms is lost in the explicit relativization. Um, I've, I've, I've got a couple of more slides which are on the question of um, whether the implicitly relativized statement says the same thing as the uh, explicitly relativized one I, uh, but I have run a little bit late so I, I think I should stop now and, and if people want to me too I can uh, talk about that in the discussion